Today's lesson is Ahab's idolatry, and we find this in 1 Kings chapters 15 through 18. Because of Jeroboam's idolatry, his whole house was wiped out in judgment. The kings of Israel that followed failed to restore the kingdom to a healthy place. Over and over again, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam, in the ways of idolatry and sinfulness. With each passing king, it seemed to be getting worse. The king Ahab came to power, and he was more evil than all of the others. And of course, the people followed. But in God's mercy and grace, he sent messengers and prophets to speak truth and to call for a return to the Lord. Some would listen, and some would not. The first point of this lesson is that Ahab leads the people further into idolatry. And we find this in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's, Judah's king Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow and worship to him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than, any, than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. During his reign, Heel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. At the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he laid its foundation, and at the cost of Sigub, his youngest, he finished its gates. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Joshua, son of Nun. It's important for us to note that the Sidonians were inhabitants of the wealthy Phoenician port city of Sidon, located today in modern-day Lebanon. They were skilled shipbuilders and people of trade. They, like the Canaanites, worshipped Baal, who was associated as a fertility god as well as a storm god. Following the deaths of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the writer of 1 Kings runs to the succeeding kings of Israel and Judah. Of the seven rulers, he identifies only one. Asa, king over Judah, did what was right. But the one focused on next, Ahab, the king over Israel, did more evil than all who were before him. Apparently the apple didn't fall far from the tree. The same was said of Omri, his father. But Ahab even surpassed him in evil. His sins are initially described as following the sin of Jeroboam. This important connection reminds us of Jeroboam's idolatry and punishment for his disobedience. Ahab was even more evil than Omri in that he took it two steps further by marrying Jezebel and worshiping her god Baal. 
This was not a coerced marriage, but one Ahab chose. This woman came from the Sidonians, who were known idol worshippers, and now the people of Israel were being led by Ahab's example to worship Baal. Ahab's evil didn't stop with the worship of Baal. He also set up an altar to worship this false god at the temple that he built for it. It's important to remember that this was actually worse than Jeroboam's idolatry. Jeroboam created golden calves as an image of the people, for the people to worship God. This was, was egregious, no doubt. But Jeroboam did not lead the people to worship an entirely false god. Ahab, on the other hand, did. In competition with the shrines and high places set up for Israel's counterfeit worship of God, Ahab set up a temple specifically for the false god that he favored. Ahab did not lead his pagan wife to worship Yahweh, but instead followed her lead to worship Baal. Idolatry was rampant in Israel, and there was no sign of obedience on the horizon. Things only got worse as there seemed to be no end to Ahab's evil. He set up an Asherah pole, another object of idolatrous worship. Asherah was considered the consort of Baal. Ahab did more to anger the Lord than any other king of Israel thus far. The evil and idolatry continued to grow, making Ahab the worst king. God's anger was justified. His people were being led to worship false gods. They were subject to the religion of a foreign pagan woman, and they were worshiping at an altar made for Baal, a rival god that really was no god. For a human observer at the time, it would be easy to wonder if God cared or even existed with the exponential growth of idolatry in Israel. Why didn't he stop it in its tracks? But... One more act at the end of this passage once again confirmed that God will not tolerate evil and will punish those who disobey him. In verse 34, there's a statement that Heel built Jericho. His oldest son died at the beginning of the work, and his youngest son died as he completed it. This passage can only be understood if the prophecy spoken through Joshua is revisited. After Jericho was burnt to the ground and Rahab and her family were spared, Joshua made this proclamation in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. The man who undertakes the rebuilding of this city, Jericho, is cursed before the Lord. He will lay its foundation at the cost of his firstborn. He will finish its gates at the cost of his youngest. God warned that the city of Jericho should not be rebuilt. But under Ahab's rule, this command was completely ignored, and Ahab allowed Heel to rebuild the city. God's word of judgment was then fulfilled as Heel's son died because of his disobedience to God. The sins of Ahab and the people of Israel had increased to the point of complete and total idolatry and denial of the true God as they disobeyed his commands and disregarded his evil word. Evil was rampant as God's people chose to disobey and walk away from the Lord. But God, in his mercy, 
would send messengers to try to bring his wayward people to repentance. The second point is that Elijah leads the people toward repentance. That's found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 15 to 21. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of armies lives in, the, in whose presence I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Now, we hear the term the Lord of Armies. This name refers to God's role as a warrior. Fighting for his people with heavenly armies or earthly ones through, through spiritual and earthly battles. Since God is all-powerful and supreme, he's victorious in all that he does. The name also refers to his role as the head of the divine council, ruling over the assembly of angelic beings. The prophet Elijah was sent by God to present himself to King Ahab and say that the rain was on its way after at least two years of famine. While on the road, he met Obadiah, a high-ranking servant of Ahab, and a man who feared the Lord. Elijah asked Obadiah to tell Ahab that he was there. But Obadiah, fearing Elijah might be called away, leaving Ob Obadiah to face the wrath of Ahab alone, questioned Elijah to get some assurances that he indeed would meet Ahab. The king was already angry and ruthlessly searching for Elijah, the one who prophesied that Israel would experience a famine until he alone said otherwise. So Obadiah's concerns were actually legitimate. Therefore, Elijah declared by the living Lord of armies that he would see Ahab that very day. So Obadiah went to arrange the meeting. Even with the potential danger to his life, Elijah desired to obey the Lord and speak the truth of God for the glory of God and for the good of his people. He trusted and obeyed, hoping God's people would repent and turn back to the Lord. When Elijah and Ahab met, the king made an immediate accusation, calling the prophet the one ruining Israel for causing the famine. From the outside, this accusation would make sense. Elijah proclaimed the famine, after all, and now all of Israel was suffering because of it. However, Elijah was not the one to blame. Elijah's response told the truth. He stated that he was not ruining Israel, but rather it was the disobedience of Ahab and his family. The famine was God's judgment on Ahab because of his idolatry, because Ahab had abandoned the Lord's commands 
and because he had turned to worship the false gods of Baal. At this point, Elijah challenged Ahab's gods. Apparently, between the lines of God's commission of Elijah and his promise to send rain was a call for a showdown. Elijah told Ahab to bring the entire nation to Mount Carmel as an audience and to bring along the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah as his opponents. A battle of 850 verses 1. These prophets were closely linked with Ahab's wife, Jezebel. They were not distant prophets, but close to the king and his family, friends of theirs, and possibly even relatives who ate at their table. Ahab agreed to the challenge and did what Elijah said. Were there out of fear or perhaps pride, he gathered all the Israelites and prophets on Mount Carmel, a site of home field advantage for Jezebel's team, being just outside Phoenicia, where her father was king. There, Elijah addressed all of the nation of Israel, speaking truth to them so that they would see their sin. He questioned them and asked how long they would waver between saying they were God's people and yet worshiping false gods. Elijah made it clear that they had, had to make a decision. Either the Lord is God or Baal is. This is rem very reminiscent of Joshua's call to the Israelites to abandon the gods beyond the Euphrates and the gods of the Amorites. Elijah was trying to get Israel to renew their covenant with the one true God. The challenge would force the people to make a definitive choice. Elijah was hoping to bring them to their knees in repentance. This challenge was met with silence. However, no one from the crowd stepped out and said, I will follow Yahweh, or I will follow Baal. It seems they were truly on the fence and didn't know which way to go. So they decided to see how the showdown went before it going all in. These people were sheep without a shepherd. But one day the Messiah... The Christ would come as the true leader, the good shepherd. We all need to lead us rightly. One day, God would send his son to lead his people on straight paths of faithfulness, obedience, and true worship. Elijah set out to prove who is God and to lead the people to repentance. Their divided attention would no longer stand. Either the people would walk away from God entirely to serve Baal, or they would see that God alone is all-powerful and return to worship Him again. So that brings us to the third point. God's power leads the people toward worship. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 36 to 39. At the time for the offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, are, you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, 
and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So in verse 21, the people of Israel did not answer Elijah when he set before them the choice to follow God or follow Baal. Elijah then thought, well, I'll propose a test to see who is the real God. He told the people to gather on Mount Carmel that the contestants would have two altars. The 450 prophets of Baal would preside over one, while Elijah, the lone prophet of, God, of the real God, would preside over the other. Each side would prepare a sacrifice and set it on the altar, but not light the fire. Then the participants would call upon their deity, and the one who answered with fire upon the altar would be the one true God, and they all agreed. The prophets of Baal went first and spent hours praying to their God, asking for a demonstration of his power. They even cut themselves, as was their custom. Yet nothing happened to their altar. They were answered with silence. Then it was Elijah's turn to demonstrate whether or not Yahweh is the one true God. Trying to give himself a disadvantage, as well as to display the power of his God, he commanded that water be poured all over the sacrifice, the wood, and on the altar. Then Elijah uttered a brief prayer in stark contrast to the begging and pleading of the prophets before him. Though the prayer was not hours long, each word was full of truth and purpose. First, he prayed to Yahweh and described who his God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. This was important because of who was surrounding Elijah. The entire nation of Israel were all descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or Israel. They were present. Elijah was praying to the God of Israel's forefathers, reminding the people of the covenants he had made with them to follow him. Second, the prayer included Elijah's petition that Yahweh make it known that he is God and that Elijah was his servant. Elijah prayed that the people would recognize that he was sent from God and that everything he did was out of obedience to the Lord. Finally, Elijah pleaded for the Lord to answer his prayer so that the people would know Yahweh is God and that they would return to him. The ultimate thrust of Elijah's prayer was not that he would look good or wise to the people of Israel, but that the people would repent and have their hearts restored to God. The purpose of a plea for God's power should be repentance and reconciliation. Now the moment of truth. Would Yahweh stay as silent as Baal had done? Of course not. After Elijah's prayer, the offering was completely, entirely consumed by the fire falling from the sky. In fact, it spelled out in such detail. Not only was the offering consumed, but every part of what had stood before the people, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water, was all destroyed in the fire. 
This was an undeniable sign that Elijah's prayer had been answered. The flames were so strong they even consumed stones, which normally cannot be turned to ash. This was a fire from above, unlike anything on this earth. The contrast could have not been greater between Yahweh and Baal. The prayers of the prophets of Baal produced not a spark, not even a whisper, nothing. No matter how loud they were, earnestly they pleaded, or how deeply they kept themselves, nothing was enough to get their dead God to listen, much less to answer. The people of Israel immediately responded to this demonstration of Yahweh's power with humility, fear, and awe, because they had witnessed who is truly God. They fell down and proclaimed, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. There was no doubt in the minds of people anymore. Yahweh alone is God, and their worship was now turned back toward Him. When the people saw that Yahweh is the true God and that Baal was false, they recognized their need to worship and serve the one true God. The Lord then ended the drought in Israel and brought rain. Though God demonstrated his power, Ahab and Jezebel continued to reign and do evil while Elijah and the other prophets spoke for the Lord. At the end of the day, though many may try to call the people back to the Lord, ultimately, people have to make their own choice to follow God or not. God, in his justice and mercy, does not ignore sin, but he always gives us the opportunity to return to worship him. I want to close this lesson with a voice from church history. Heinrich Bullinger, who lived from 1504 to 1575, said, Elijah, the great prophet of God, taught that God rejects being worshipped alongside another God. For the Lord our God requires our entire heart and mind and soul. As such, he leaves nothing for us to give to another. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we just um, thank you for the demonstration of your power to show these, these, the Israelites that you were God. And Lord Jesus, I just ask that everyone that listens to this lesson, that you demonstrate your power to them this coming week in their lives. Just send the Holy Spirit out and just make it abundantly clear to them that you're alive and well and you're working on their behalf. And Lord Jesus, I pray for those who are sick and hurting today, that you would just surround them with your comfort and your grace and mercy and restore them, restore their spirit, restore their bodies, restore their minds. And Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would guide and direct us toward those that need to hear the message of your love and mercy through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins on the cross so that we might have eternal life and that he would pay our debt. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.